But if you haven't already, turn in your copy of Scripture, whether it's a physical copy or a electronic one, to the book of Hebrews. And you might remember that last week we started uh, what will be a long-term series uh, through this book. Um, uh, the title of the book of Hebrews, at least the theme that I've given it, is the glory of Christ, our hope and comfort. The glory of Christ, our hope and comfort. Now let me say just one thing about this theme, okay? It's one thing to know about Jesus. It's a completely different thing to know the reality of who he is by experience. I can sit in here in the aircon and I can say, I know that the sun is out. I think it's out. <laughs> I know that the sun is hot. And I know it's bright. And I know if I stay out in it too long, I'll wilt. But it's a completely different thing for me to be out in the sun and to say, man, the sun is bright. It's hot. It's all-consuming. You understand the difference? We can say we know things about Jesus. It's completely different to say, I know by experience the glory of Christ. Because even as Moses saw the glory of God, even as he was behind that rock, when he was getting the Ten Commandments, when he came out, what had happened to him? His face was glowing. Why? Because he had had an experience in the very presence of the glory of God. Now, we have the Word of God, and through the Word, we see Christ for who He is. And listen, We cannot help but be changed when we come into the presence of Christ. You can't help but glow when you've been in the presence of Jesus. So that's why I chose this theme that we would encourage one another. And as we come together, we sing about that, just like we did today. We study it so that when we go out and we come into contact with those that God's put in our community, they say about us, hey, there's something different about Jeff. He seems to have a glow. And it's not because he had a makeover. He didn't go to the, for spa treatment. It's because he was in the very presence of Christ. Does that make sense? So our theme verse comes out of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but what? But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day. What is that day? That's when Jesus will come back. Because that day is in fact drawing near. It's imminent. That's just to say that it could happen at any time. Jesus is who he is. We don't make him anything more or less. And when he returns, can I just add as an aside, we will no longer have the opportunity to experience him as learners, so to speak, 
Because our souls will forever be with him in his presence if we are in Christ. That's the day that we look forward to. And so our hope is we talk about the glory of Christ. It's our hope because we look forward to it. It's our comfort because as we gather together, it becomes one of the primary things that we talk about. And we encourage one another with, hey, have you seen Jesus this week? And I don't mean that you've seen a vision of Jesus. What we mean is, have you seen Christ in the scriptures? And is he transforming your heart and your life? R.C. Sproul said this, and you remember this from last week. There is nothing in this universe that you need more desperately than Christ. Do you believe that? Um, In my spirit... I say yes, but in my flesh from day to day, there's a lot of other things competing, competing for me to know, to grab my attention. It's so very vital that regardless of what you do vocationally or who you are, that you would know Christ and his glory. And sort of an application to that I found from Dr. John Piper. He says, my feelings are not God. Now, We wrestle with our feelings. Is that not true? What we know competes with what I feel. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, he says, many times my feelings are out of sync with the truth. You ever feel that way? Do you ever know something to be true, but you feel something completely different? When that happens, and it happens every day, and in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather, I plead with God. Purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. That is a great application for taking the glory of Christ and saying, I want to know that truth, and I don't want my feelings or my circumstances that inform my feelings to What did he speak? Well, he spoke to the fathers, okay? Those were the Old Testament prophets. He also appointed. Who did he appoint? After he spoke through his son. Well, he appointed Jesus as the heir of all things. We know in Colossians chapter 1, referring back to Genesis, Jesus created the world. And because he's the creator, he's also the heir of all things. God not only spoke, God appointed Jesus as the heir, but he also announced that Jesus is the Savior. Do you remember that? This week. Okay, and regardless of how we get through the next, uh, next few minutes, don't worry. Whether the power comes in and out, here's the three points, okay? Uh, this is what you need to take from today in case we walk out of here in about five minutes. Number one, Jesus is superior, and we're going to talk about the fact that he is superior to angels. That's the book of Hebrews. He's not only the heir of all things, the creator of all things, he's the radiance of God's glory, he's the second person of the Trinity, he's the one who took our sins and purified us. 
the author of the book of Hebrews, we're not confident who that author was, whether it was Paul or someone else. He is the one who is, he is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses, to Joshua, to all the prophets. He's superior to the sacrificial system. And in the text today, we're going to find that he is indeed superior to angels. And I have a question for you. Some of you were here last week, most of you. Did you ever consider that between Sunday last week and Sunday afternoon this week, whether or not you entertained an angel? Did you think about that? Did an angel come in to your life? Did you meet them? Go to Hebrews chapter 13. The author says, that sometimes we entertain angels and we don't even know who they are. Now that should blow some of our minds. Because the author says, be hospitable to one another. Because sometimes those asking for hospitality, they're actually angels. Now catch this, sent by God. Did you turn anyone away this week? And, and neglect to show hospitality to someone, to me, I, I'm convicted because there's not a week that goes by where I hesitate to show Christ's love that he's shown to me to someone else. You say, well, why would you ask us if we've entertained angels? Well, because in the text today, the author is going to say, yes, there are angels. They're real we know from the book of Galatians and Colossians that there was a struggle in the early church that some wanted to worship angels. Someone even claimed in the book of Galatians that an angel had come and given them a new gospel. And for some of us that are 21st century, particularly Westerners, we don't operate in the spirit world. But I would simply say that first century people did. And for any of our brothers and sisters here in Asia, they certainly do. They understand the reality of the supernatural. And so on one hand, we don't want to go so far that we worship angels, but we certainly don't want to deny them either. So the author is going to give us three points, or at least these are my three points. It's a long text, so if you get lost, here's the three. Jesus is superior to angels because of his name and his sonship. We're going to see that in verses 4 and 5. Secondly, Jesus is superior to angels because he is king and is to be worshipped. Angels aren't to be worshipped. Thirdly, Jesus is superior to angels because he reigns. We sang that. And angels were created to serve. Uh, it's fascinating. He has a name. He has sonship. Jesus is the king and to be worshipped. And Jesus reigns. Angels don't. That's the point. And you'll note in the text, if you have italics in your version of scripture, that the author is going to quote seven, at least seven. I think there's more, but everyone agrees there's at least seven Old Testament passages and whenever New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament, your ears should perk up, your mind should be alert, because there is interpretation and application going on. So, look here at Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 4, and we're going to read all the way through 14. 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of un." righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved your righteousness and hated wickedness therefore god your god has anointed you with all the oil of gladness beyond your companions verse 10 and your la- your lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Then verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. How many of you like missionary biographies? I hope that you do. Anybody hear of uh, one particular person by the name of John Payton? Any know John Payton? Oh, you need to know about him. Look, look him up. You can get the, the internet version. He was a Scottish Presbyterian uh, missionary. Uh, he went to a head-hunting tribe in the New Hebrides in 1858. And during his first term, it was just him and his wife, and they were in the village, and the people did not want them there, and they knew they were cannibals. And one night, they saw torches in the distance, and as they came out onto the porch of, of, of their little hut... They saw all of the villagers lined up on one end, except they just weren't the villagers. They were the warriors, and they had spears and knives in their hands. And they knew that it was their intention that they were going to kill Mr. and Mrs. Peyton at the moment. And the only thing they need, knew to do was to get down on their knees and pray through Psalm 91. Now, Psalm 91 is a psalm of deliverance, asking God that he would send angels to protect them. So there they stayed on their knees, thinking at any moment that these villagers were going to invade their home and kill them. But all of a sudden, the sun popped up, and they looked out the door, and there was no one left. No one ever disturbed them ever again. A year later, they saw their first convert in the New Hebrides. It was the village chief. And as he was sitting here, and he, by then he had learned enough language to begin to talk with him, he asked him, excuse me, sir, do you remember that night that you were going to attack our home? And the village chief says, yeah, I do. I was there. And John Payton said, yeah, I saw you in the front. I thought you were the one who was going to kill me. And he says, yeah. He says, as I, we looked to your hut we saw hundreds upon hundreds of men standing with swords at their ready. 
We were scared to death. And I told the rest of our warriors, don't touch them. They've been sent to us. Now, remember, John Payton, he's a Presbyterian minister, okay? (laughs) He's not given to exaggeration and interaction with the spirit world here. And I don't know how to explain that other than to say, I think this is an outworking of one of the things that angels do. Now, I don't know how that sits with your own systematic theology. If it doesn't fit, then you might want to read this text several times and allow it, to be, allow it to begin to fit there. Because it says that God does send his angels to serve and to protect the elect, those that are in Christ. Now, I don't know how much you've, you've thought about angels, and I'm going to get a a little bit more into this next week because chapter 2 starts off and again he's still going to be talking about angels it must have been important we're not given a lot of insight why it was but angels appear some 300 times in the old and new testament in some 37 different books can you think of some of the times that they've arrived they arrived in the book of genesis they saved lot they talked to abraham one mighty angel you might remember in Isaiah chapter 37, he destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Remember the book of Daniel. One angel rescued three young Hebrews from the fiery furnace. One angel kept Daniel from being eaten in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. If you flip to the New Testament, you know that an angel rolled the stone away in Matthew 28. One miraculously delivered Peter from prison in Acts chapter 12. And if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, we know that at the second coming of Christ, an angel will lock Satan and throw him into hell for the final time. Angels are real, my friends. They're created beings, but they are not made to be worshipped. And when we talk about angels, we're not talking about demons here. We're talking about angels that were created, that stayed, and they worship God Angels are there to worship Christ and to point to his glory, but they're also sent by God to deliver messages and to protect the elect. That should cause us to think, how does this fit? How does this fit in our everyday life? I think this should cause us to consider Christ is indeed superior to angels. And again, Paul's not denying that they exist. In fact, he's pointing to illustrations like the experience of John Payton, where he was delivered by angels. I would have to say that angels are pretty awesome, but they're not anything in comparison to the person of Christ. Jesus is superior to angels because of his name and his sonship. Okay, let's look quickly. Verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 answers... Okay, the question that's posed in verse 3 about who Jesus is by saying he is much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now what does that mean? Well, the name that Christ inherited shows he is much greater than angels, but why? When Christ died and made purifications for sins, which is alluded in the verse before, he triumphed over death and Satan, according to Hebrews 2.14. He was enthroned as king at the right hand of the Father. 
And when a king was enthroned in the Old Testament, there was a declaration that he was now formally taking up his title and his inheritance. Remember, he's the heir. He's the heir of all things because he is the creator. And one of the ways that that declaration was given was with the words spoken by God saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if you have time, go back and read Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 89, verse 27, because this is why the writer says in verse 5, in response to Christ's enthronement as king, Thou art my son today, I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. The point of the verse is to tell us that his name is superior to angels. It's the name Son Not as son as you and I are sons to God, as being ones who have been adopted, but as the second person of the Trinity. Now, this is where the cults get it wrong. So if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or to a Mormon, they'll quickly point to the fact that we're all sons of God. The Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, he is just the greatest angel ever created. That's why a Mormon will say, see, you and I, we can be like sons of God. And what we have to look forward to is our own nirvana, our own heaven. But they miss the point of the text. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, or you can just read it if it's still up here. It is up there, Romans chapter 1. Paul starts out this great missionary letter. Did you know that the book of Romans was the longest missionary letter ever written? Um, He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't want to miss this, that Jesus is indeed superior to angels and to anything else in the universe because of his name and because of his sonship. It's the whole point of this text that we cannot miss. Because if Jesus is not the son, if he is not the son of God, then he couldn't be the one who made purification for our sins. This doctrine, and all of you have a a, a doctrinal statement that you sign with your organization or with your institution, always has a section on who Jesus is. And the reason it's there is because what separates Christianity from all other religions is because we believe that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God. We cannot budge from here. You cannot fudge. You cannot bend this truth. It is immovable. Jesus is not only the Son of God, which makes him superior, but secondly, Jesus is superior to the angels because he is king and the angels worship him. Verse 6 draws out this truth that makes the degree of his superiority to angels crystal clear when he says, when he, 
God again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, there's some debate as to what the author is referencing. I simply believe that this is a reference to the second coming when Jesus will return again and the entire world will see who he is on he- in heaven and the angels will worship him as they do now and on earth. And whether you're in Christ or outside of Christ, according to Philippians chapter 2, you will yield yourself to the name of Christ and his person. And again, I've said this often and it bears saying again, I do not make Jesus anything more or less than he already is. And there will come a day when you will worship as one who has given their life to Christ Or you will worship him and you will bow and yield your soul to the person of Christ because he alone is worthy to be worshipped. Even if you have rebelled and you are outside of Christ, you will yield to him and then face judgment. He is the king. And so when we sing, either by doxology or in worship, that he reigns, we are declaring a truth. It's a truth that is true in the past, it's true today, and it will certainly culminate in the future. He is indeed the king, the one who reigns. Of the angels, he says, who makes the angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? This comes out of Psalm 104, verse 4. But of the Son, he says, again quoting Psalm 45, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions." In verse 8, and then again in verse 9, God is called his God. Now, we don't have time to unpack this other than to say, if you look at the way the author is presenting this, the Father is referring to the Son, and the Son is referring to the Father as God. So we have an endorsement of this Trinitarian relationship of God the Father as God, God the Son as God. And you'd say, well, what does that all that mean? Well, again, I think that Dr. John Piper captures it when he says the reason Christ is worshipped by angels is not that Christ is the Son of God like an angel is or like Christians are, but because he is the Son of God in the sense that he is God the Son. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever So this is why when the author takes Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, which refers to God as the creator, he applies it to the Son. Why? Because the Son is God. This is simply drawing out what he's already said earlier in the chapter when he said that the Son made the world. Only now he says that this means that the Son made the world and what can be said of God's creating can be said of the Son's creating through the Son. Jesus Christ is indeed the creator of the universe. He is God and he is to be worshipped. The point of the whole chapter and really of the entire Bible is to make us passionately devoted to the glory of Jesus as ruler and redeemer and creator. 
again, we can know a lot about the fact, facts about the Son. The question is whether or not we've experienced this reality that the author's talking about in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is superior. Why? Because of his name and his sonship. He's superior because he's king and angels worship him. Thirdly, in verses 13 and 14, he's superior because he reigns and angels are made to serve. Look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? It's a rhetorical question. This is a question that's posed in Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? So he goes back and he refers to verse 3 where Christ sits down at the right hand of God the Father in all power. Then he refers to verse 8, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is a seat. It's picturing Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And then he says, You're sitting at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he says, God never said that to an angel. But look at what he says of angels to show the contrast in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What's the contrast here? Well, John Payton, (laughs) he found out that one of the things angels do are they are sent to protect the servants of Christ who go to the unreached. We have no idea how God is using the angelic realm on our behalf. We have confidence in who Christ is, and we have confidence that he's doing that, but ultimately it points us back to his glory. Several things to keep in mind. One, Jesus is sitting as king here. They're sent as servants, as angels. There's only one king. There's many angels. They are servants of Christians, those who by faith are inheriting salvation, and Christ is the king over the church, angels to do his bidding. So he sends them to serve us, to preserve our faith, and even that others would inherit salvation, and in the angels serving us, the enemies of God are made a footstool at Christ's feet. So... As we think about the text, okay, um, we know that Jesus is the Son of God in a way that no angel ever was or will be. Secondly, Jesus is not an angel. He's worshipped by angels. Thirdly, he's not an angel. He's God. Jesus is not an angel. He is the eternal creator of all things. And finally, he's seated on the throne as king, and angels are dispatched to do the king's bidding. Now, I don't think that any of us here would disagree with the fact that Christ is superior to angels. But evidently, the author of the book of Hebrews, writing to this group of first century believers, thought it was important enough to point these things out. And I can with confidence say that it's just as important for us today. So what would the application be? Jesus is indeed superior. He's the Son of God. He's King. Here's the application. Christ's glory demands 
worship. He came to the world, according to John 1.14, to reveal himself in spirit and in truth. He is the true light. Angels are not. Angels are not. Secondly, Christ's glory fuels everything his creation does, whether they be angels or us. You can go out with confidence tomorrow and do exactly what God has called you to do in your classroom, in your ministry, as a church planner, as a linguist, as an NGO worker, rescuing people uh, uh, from human trafficking, and you can do it not because you'll be successful. You can do it with confidence, knowing that, yes, there's an angelic world that is sent to help us, but we ultimately do it for the glory of Christ. And finally, Christ's glory causes us to make decisions which reflect His reality. His reality. Acts chapter 21, Paul's about to go to Rome. And the people that cared most about him, they intervened and they said, please don't do this. Why? Well, because they're going to kill you. And what did Paul say? Stop breaking my heart. This is what God has called me to. This is where I'm going. Patrick of Ireland, some of you know him as St. Patrick. He didn't wear green all the time. He says, I am a slave of Christ in a remote country because of the unspeakable glory of eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Some of you are in a foreign country a faraway place, and you wake up some days thinking, how did I get here? Why am I here? You're here for the glory of Christ. And there is nothing sweeter. There is nothing better. So yes, Christ is better than angels. He is the best there is in the world. And even as we sing this closing song, Allow this truth to sort of permeate your, your heart and your thoughts so that you would walk away and you would say, I'm all about the glory of Christ, not just knowing about him, but knowing the reality of who he is.